Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, welcome to Harvest Christmas Service. We're a few days before Christmas, but this is the last Sunday before the holiday. And so we wanted to make sure we acknowledge the birth of Christ as we gather together for worship. I want to invite you, if you're still standing... Come and have a seat. It's okay to... Uh, there's a, there, what happened to all the padded seats up here? The nicely upholstered... Well, there's lots of empty seats. Please feel free to come and sit down and join us. We're going to be here for at least two more hours while I preach, so <laughs> might want to get comfortable. All right. Well, the title of the message this morning is A Savior is Born. And I want to read from Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 12. And then we'll look at John 1.14 as well. And I'm going to need to flip this around here. Okay. Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 12. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And then here's John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I'm going to ask you a simple question. What is the most common question you hear asked around Christmas time? Come on, what is it? Yeah, what did you get? Or even or more to the point, what do you want for Christmas, right? Right around Christmas time, that's the most common question. Is, what do you want for Christmas? Uh, it, it's sad that that's probably the most common question asked around Christmas. But let me ask you another question. What exactly is it that we're celebrating at Christmas? I mean, it's like whether you're a, a churchgoer or not, whether you're a Christian or not, the whole country loses its collective minds around Christmas time. Everybody's in a better mood. The music is happy. You get into a car accident, it's like, hey, it's okay, season's greetings. Are you all right, buddy? You know, any other time of the year, you'd be in a fist fight. But for some reason, this time of the year, everybody's sort of getting into it, and they're in a celebratory mood. And the question I want to ask you is, what exactly is it that's such a big deal? What's being celebrated at Christmas time? And as Christians, I want to ask you that question in a more pointed way. What exactly are you so excited about at Christmas time? What are you celebrating? And of course, the children helped us to understand that the right answer, the most simple answer is this it's Jesus' birthday, the birth of Christ. That's what we celebrate. And that will definitely get you an A in Sunday school. <clears throat> And it is the right answer, but when you think about the birth of Christ, or as the kids put it, Jesus' birthday, what exactly do you have in mind? Is it maybe something like this? <clears throat> That's a sacrilegious vandalism of a classic painting. 
But I wonder if sometimes this is about the extent of what we, and this is great for Sunday school. I like that the kids think of Jesus' birthday as a celebration, and we want to give Jesus the gift of our hearts and all of that. That's wonderful. But is this where it ends for us as adult followers of Christ? Happy birthday, Jesus. You know, blow the little noisemaker and, you know, say, Jesus, this day is all about you. I think that's a good starting point. But if it ends there, I think something tremendous is missing. We're not just celebrating Jesus' birthday, but I think what we're celebrating is the fact that Jesus had a birthday at all. The idea that an infinite God descended to be among us as one of us, that God came down and entered human life. Now, I think you may not consider that a big deal if you've grown up in the church, but the idea that our God did not make us jump through hoops and climb ladders to reach him, but that he came down to us is one of the most profound messages of the Christian faith. And theologians call this idea of God becoming a human being the incarnation. The incarnation is one of the the most dear and precious of our beliefs because what we believe in the incarnation at Christmas is that an infinite God took on human form. He became flesh and blood, or according to scripture, literally he became meat and bones for our sakes. And I want to look at the incarnation with you, what it is that we actually celebrate at Christmas time, and I want to show you that there are some very important things the incarnation reveals about the heart of the God that we worship. But I also want to show you that the incarnation in its different aspects is not just a blessing for us, it's an example to us. So let's move on. The first thing I want to show you from the Incarnation is that it really reveals the humility of God. And right away, you should understand that that's a very unusual string of words, the humility of God. Because who usually, who usually do we consider to be humble? People of lowly station. But what we understand is that our God, though he was the highest being in the universe, humbled himself. Here's what it says in John 1.14 again. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. I don't know if we fully appreciate the humility that was required for the word of God to leave the Father's side in glory and take on human form. I mean, we're pretty fond of our human form and the world we built. You know, there are times when I'll watch shows on the Discovery Channel and I'll think, I can't believe people build stuff that size. And I'm pretty impressed with us as a race of people. I really think human beings have done incredible things. We have popped off the surface of our planet and reached the moon, and we've done amazing things. We've sent vessels to the edge of our solar system. One of them just popped right out the the bounds of our, our solar system. So we've done great things. And yet I wonder if we realize that when God became one of us, he was slumming it. He took, a, he took a really huge step downward to join us as a human being. An infinite God voluntarily took on the biological indignities of being a person. I have a hard time picturing Jesus relieving himself and then cleaning up afterwards. That just seems so beneath a God, and yet he had to go through it several times a week at least. He took on the finiteness, the limitations of being human. A God who is everywhere at once, bound himself to be in one place, in one body, in one town at a time until his earthly life was over. 
He took the slow route. He didn't come as a, a glorious giant being. He came as a baby, and he spent an entire life growing up one day at a time, just like the rest of us. He took on voluntarily the physical weakness of being a human being, of having things that were too heavy for him to lift, of getting sleepy, too sleepy to finish the sermon he was working on. I sometimes wonder if Jesus, before a big talk, had to sit there and go, I don't know if I could do this tomorrow. I wonder if he got sleepy the night before church, the way I sometimes do. And here's the wonderful news about all of that, is that when Jesus became one of us, he also revealed the glory of God. And let me tell you what that means, just so that I can, I can break this open for you before you all fall asleep. <clears throat> when Jesus became a human being and he took on flesh and blood, what he did was redeem the idea of what flesh and blood is. You know, we often think of flesh as something very weak, very paltry, nothing like God. And we think it's so, such a pitiful and pathetic thing. Sometimes we get really frustrated in our own flesh. Haven't you ever been there where you think, what is wrong with me? There are so many things I don't like about myself. This is the, right around the time of the year where you, you set yourself up for failure and future disappointment, isn't it? Because you take stock of your life and you think, next year, I swear, I'm going to do it better. I resolve to do this and that. And by the first week of next year, you're already disappointed with yourself. Isn't that the story of every year? I think that's why we have to have New Year's, just to at least get a false start again and again. And the truth is, being human is pretty frustrating. I feel really encased in a prison of weakness and limitation as a human being. And I often use that limitation as an excuse for the way I am, the condition of my life. I've often said to people, well, look, it's part of being human. We're fallen. It's just, I'm, I'm a, a person just like you. I'm not infinite. But when Jesus took on flesh and blood, he redeemed the idea of what flesh and blood could be. And what he showed us is that flesh and blood in, in itself inherently is not limited in a way that cannot express God's glory. Let me break that down to you in a, in a better way through an, an analogy, okay? How many of you like to cook? Just raise your hand if you like to. I'm not asking if you're a good cook. We're not going to make you come up here and demonstrate. All right. So I love the passion of this church. How many of you like to cook? If you like to cook, raise your hand. How many of you love the Food Channel? And how many of you who love to cook and love the Food Channel find that it's kind of a frustrating experience when you think about what those people have the talent to do and what they have the resources and equipment to do. Have you ever said to yourself, my kitchen, my ingredients, my food budget, my culinary skills are so inadequate, I can't make anything great. When I watch the Food Channel, I get hungry, and then it's immediately frustrating because I look around my house and goes, there's nothing in this place even approaching the stuff they throw away. It's frustrating. But I will bet you this. If a professional chef came to your house with no extra shopping, no extra ingredients, no extra tools, out of your kitchen with your ingredients, that chef can make something that will blow your mind. And when that chef does that, what they're doing is redeeming your kitchen. What they're doing is showing you, you look at this stuff and say, this is so limited, I can't do anything with this. This is garbage. If I had what they had, I could do what they do. And what he's showing you is that with even the stuff you have, it's possible to do great things. 
when a chef comes and rescues your kitchen from its inherent limitations, what that chef is doing is she's showing you that you don't have to hide behind the limitations and weakness of what you think you have because it's possible that there's more there than what you believe. I think when Jesus became one of us, what he was saying is there's nothing about being meat and bone that makes you unable to express the glory of God. And this is good news for those of us who are frustrated with ourselves because a lot of the times we're feeling like, but I'm so human, I'm so fallible. I try year after year, nothing good's going to come out of this shell. This is just how I am. And what Jesus showed us is you can actually be a bearer of the image and glory of God. You can get it right. There's nothing about being encased in a body that makes it impossible for you to shine for Jesus Christ. It's good news for us because it gives us hope that the limitation is not in this, it's in our hearts. And if God would set our hearts free, there's no limit to what he could do through our lives. Here's what the writer of Hebrews said as well. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Another expression of the humility of God in the incarnation is this. He didn't just become one of us, but he came one of us in the same place we all have to live. He didn't get a luxury condo in the high-rises of Jerusalem. He, He didn't come sending his servants down to do his shopping. He actually entered an imperfect world. Jesus lived a perfect life, but he lived it in the same imperfect, garbage-filled world that you and I have to live with. And yes, Jesus faced some intense things that you and I will probably never have to face. I think it's unlikely that most of us will have a gun put in our faces and given the choice to renounce Christ and live or to die and accept him. I think that's the kind of choice most of us will never have to make. Jesus faced some incredible pressures that will be foreign to most of our experience. But the thing that comforts me so much about Jesus is that he also faced the same junk that I have to face all the time. He faced people who were ungrateful when he served them. You know, I I thought about this this, the other day. Jesus was perfect, but his family was not. He had to live with younger siblings who were jerks. He had to live with best friends in school who betrayed him. He was a firstborn child. How many of you are firstborn children? So you know that you're messed up because, just like me, I'm a firstborn. You're totally messed up. Why? Because your parents had no idea what the heck they were doing when they had you. You were there first, which means they'd never done it before. No practice. You were the guinea pig, and that's why the rest of them had such an easy time. Because they finally got their junk together after they had pretty much blown it with you. I'm sorry, that's the truth of it. Firstborns are always weird. And the fact is, Jesus was perfect, but his parents were screw-ups just like all of us. I'm sure that Mary and Joseph lost their tempers. They were grumpy at him. They mistreated him, accused him falsely for stuff that James was doing. They're like, Jesus, I told you. James did that, Mom. It's amazing to me that he lived in exactly the same world you and I have to live in, but he was able to do it without sin. And I don't think the message there is so we should be able to do it without sin either. But what I'm saying is, do you see that what Jesus showed us was nothing in this broken and fallen world precludes the possibility that in our lives, Jesus could shine through and the glory of God can actually be seen in our lives. And like I said in the beginning, 
the aspects of the incarnation are not just a blessing for us. The humility of God is not just a wonderful blessing for us. It's an example to us. Look at what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. He says, in your relationships with one another. So this is a teaching to us about how we love others. Here's what he holds up as an example. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Normally the way it works in relationships is if you have done the bad thing to somebody else, then you are the one without power. You have to go and ask for forgiveness, and the person who was wronged has power. They can sit where they are and say, look, I'm going to wait for you to come groveling. I'm not going to approach you. You have to come and apologize to me. Isn't that the way it works? I mean, married people, I know not everyone here is married, but if you're married, maybe you're in that place right now this morning. You came to church in the middle of a big fight. And what your heart is saying is, I'm not going to make the first move. When they decide to be repentant and they own up to what they did, they will come begging for mercy and forgiveness, groveling to me, and then I will magnanimously, I release you. Run along. And you see how it works is in a conflict, in a relationship. The one who was offended actually has the power to release or to hold. And it's the other person who's usually expected to come groveling for mercy. But that's not the way it worked with God. One of the great expressions of the humility of God is that when he was the one wronged by us, he was the one who made the first move approaching us. He understood that we lacked the humility or the ability to go to him on our own. And so he did not stay up in heaven watching us try to jump high enough to get on to the next ledge. He came down to where we were. This is the humility of God in relationship is that divine love always requires humility. You cannot experience real love in this world if you don't have a capacity for humility. Because the way that Jesus loved us is encapsulated in this idea that he humbled himself. Because if you don't do that, then every conflict will drive a bigger wedge between people. I watched an episode of a TV show recently where where two twin brothers owned a business and the business was failing because they hated each other. They could not reconcile with each other. They could not see eye to eye. And until this person rescuing the business could mend that relationship, there was no hope for the business. I thought, that's just the weirdest thing that you could share the exact same DNA. You could be twins even and be totally driven apart. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but some of you have siblings with whom you have absolutely no relationship anymore? Do you have friends you love more than your own brother or your sister? And maybe that's the way some of us feel about our parents. Maybe that's the way some of us are starting to feel about our kids. How scary is that? (laughs) Dang kids. Maybe you're dating somebody right now, and that's starting to happen. And I will bet you, if you look really honestly at your relationship, the wedge that is being driven between you is because both people are saying, I ain't moving. You have to come to me. Why should I have to come to you? There's too much to forgive. I'm not going to do any of it. And when you've groveled long enough, maybe I will release you. 
And I'm telling you right now, if you don't develop a capacity for humility, not just this relationship, but every relationship you engage in afterwards will die a slow death because pride and inability to lower yourself kills relationships. Every relationship we have that's ever died, died because of neglect or because of conflict. And wrapped into the decline of those relationships is usually the loss of humility, the ascension of pride. So here's one true principle you can take home with you that we learn from the humility of the incarnation, is that true love requires humility and pride is poison in relationships. Did you get that? True love requires humility and pride is poison for relationships. And pride is expressed this way in scripture as a person who will not bend or move. Everybody else must move to them. Now, I don't mean to minimize the pain that puts you in that place. I know for some of us, the pain we have borne in life is very, very great. But what Jesus' incarnation reminds us of is you are only adding to your own pain because the pain of broken relationships from yesterday has followed you into today and will follow you into tomorrow. A relationship once broken can actually be healed through humility. But without humility, yesterday's pain will always be today's pain and tomorrow's pain as well. If we learn anything from the incarnation, it is this. Real love requires humility. And pride is poison to relationships. Let's look at one other thing here. Um, a second insight from the revelation. And that is that, that real love also is about sacrifice. What Paul wrote demonstrates this to us. The entire mission of Jesus' life was to die. The reason he had to become flesh and blood was so that that flesh and blood could be torn apart and shed for us. In the Gospel of Mark, here's how he puts it. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The entire reason Jesus entered humanity and was given earthly life was to give up that life for us. In other words, every, every motive he had was wrapped around the mission of giving it all up for somebody else. Here's what 1 John 3.16 says. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. The reason Jesus came the way he did was so that he could show us the real motive behind God saving us. See, God didn't just come to save us to make things right in the universe. He came to save us because he loved us. I, I, I don't want us to miss that because sometimes we reduce Christianity into a system of moral beliefs and laws. And we say, well, you know, if you don't want to go to hell, but you want to go to heaven, believe these things and say these things and we'll make it all right. But what we have to understand is the real motive behind the gospel and what we're really celebrating at Christmas is not that God saved us so much as that God loves us. Everything God does for us is driven not by need or duty or responsibility, but by love. 
In fact, this is how we know what love even is. We look at the cross of Jesus Christ and the fact that he came to to take on a life only to give it up for us. In that sacrifice, you understand what real love is about. Every other god in human religious history has demanded sacrifices of their followers. But only our God has made the ultimate sacrifice for us. So if you want to make sense of Christianity, if you want to understand truly what we're celebrating at Christmas, one of the things we've got to accept is we cannot make sense of this faith apart from the concept of sacrifice. I think that's why sometimes it is so much harder for the gospel to spread in wealthy, developed nations. Because the concept of sacrifice is dying in the wealthy, developed West. We only sacrifice when we have no other option. When someone guilts us into it, pressures us into a corner, or when we have to make one sacrifice in order to gain something we'd rather have. The idea of sacrifice is really lost in the world you and I live in. But the nature of real love, the kind of love God showed us, is built entirely around this central pillar of sacrifice. So let me ask you, do you have the attitude and practice of sacrifice in the people you say you love? Now, for some of you, the answer is simply yes. God bless you. Take a two-minute nap while I talk to everybody else. But I will bet you there are some people in your life that if you're really, really reflective about it, what you can understand is I claim every day to love them, but it's been a really long time since I've made a true sacrifice for that person. That my love for these people is about sentiment and words, but it has cost me very little to love this other person. What I appreciate about God is he didn't make the sacrifice he wanted to make. He made the sacrifice we needed him to make. And why am I saying this? Because I've, I've listened to testimonies from high school students for a very many, many years. When I was a youth pastor, I would listen to these high school kids, and they would tell me what's really on their hearts. I said, well, I don't know. You, you dress pretty nice. You have a nice car. You get to go on vacation to cool places every year. Your dad seems like a pretty nice guy. What are you complaining about? What's wrong with your family? And I say, well, my dad works a lot, and he gives us nice things, but that's not really what we ever wanted from him. He's making sacrifices he wants to make, but he has never made the sacrifice we needed him to make. He's never been to one of my games. He's hardly home when I go to bed. Even when he is at home, I have to be very careful not to bother him. There are some dads in this world who are, have the giant do not disturb tattoo on their forehead. Don't bother me. Some moms are like that too. So the real question about love is, are you, are you busy making the sacrifices you want to make, or are you making the sacrifices that the people you claim to love need you to make? And by that standard, are you truly sacrificial in the relationships that you have? No one but God can judge that. I can't look at your life and assess any of it. But I want to ask you to stand before God and ask that question. The way I love people Is there an element of real sacrifice behind that love? So that's one more principle you can take home with you. Is that true love 
requires sacrifice. And selfishness is poison to relationships. It's one of the things that the incarnation reminds us of, is that true love requires sacrifice. That selfishness is poison to relationships. Now, I want to just, before I move on, make this point. You may be very kind and nice to that person, but that's a little different from being truly sacrificial towards that person, of getting out of your self-centeredness and really examining their life through a different lens. And it may be that some of us who are Christians but have people we care about who are not Christians, that one of the things that keeps them far from God is that they have yet to see true sacrifice coming from those who claim to follow him. So I want to ask you, if you have somebody you care about who's far from Christ, this is a good place to really settle and reflect for a while. Have you been truly sacrificial in a way that reveals what our God is like to that person? And let me move on and give you the last observation, the last thing we can learn from the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And that is intimacy. Intimacy. I remember a time when I had to cancel one of the channels on my cable TV service. It, it was a part of a package. We had never watched any, like Comedy Central and all this. I never watched any of that stuff, so I just wanted to save some money. And so I was calling the cable company and listen, I grew up during the era when cable was being invented. Some of you did as well. So I remember we were like one of the first families in our neighborhood to get cable. And the guy would have to come out. And I was used to this. Every time you want to make a change, you'd have to make an appointment. And someone would come out to your house and fiddle around in the box behind your house and flip a, a switch. And that, and suddenly you don't have HBO. And so I remember there were rumors in high school. Hey, dude, we found out a way. If you just hit these jumpers and said it, you get free HBO. All you got to do is mess with your box outside. I never did it, but here's the thing. I realized that's how I expected it to work. And then I was shocked when the nice lady in front said, oh, sir, we don't have to make an appointment. All I had to do is hit a keystroke here at the central office, and it's taken care of. I can turn on this channel or turn off that channel right here from home base. Why am I saying that? Because it just occurred to me the other day, why couldn't God make salvation work like that? Why couldn't he have just like a big supercomputer with every soul listed in there as, as a file? Just go, I'm going to save you. Keystroke, control Z, undo. Undo your damnation and paste salvation right onto you. I mean, it seems to me that God, if he's truly powerful, could have done it that way, couldn't he? Easily. He could have just made it salvation an issue of flipping a switch from home base, and just like that, you were once lost, and now you're found. Congratulations. Why did he do it the other way? If he could have done it the easy way, then it reveals something important about God when you look at how hard a path he actually took. Because he did it in the exact opposite way that a consultant would have asked him to do it. Imagine God hires your consulting firm. Paul, what's the name of your consulting firm? <laughs> so we got Paul in here with God. All right, here's a, goal. here's a goal. Like 7 billion people, we want to get the good news out to them, and we want to save them. What should we do? And everything we would recommend revolves around efficiencies, conveniences, mass markets, accessibility, distribution, how many of us would have said, hey, that's a great idea, so you're going to go as a baby, helpless and 
poop in your diaper for like two years, fragile, you're going to be born in the most backwater part of the most backwater part of the world, and you're going to spend 30 years just growing up. And then for three years, as one person, you're just going to walk around the countryside preaching to people and take 12 dudes who are not even the, the all-stars on the planet, 12 basically losers, and you're going to train them to change the world. That's your salvation plan. Every consultant, I, that, if that's what you're going to do, why'd you even call us? We're, we're out of here. God took most ridiculously long, circuitous, patient, inefficient route to save us. And when you look at how he chose to do it, you learn something about his heart. Because the way he did it reveals to us how concerned he is to know us and to be known by us. That intimacy with us was a really big part of what drove the heart of God to save us. He arrives as a baby and he lives the exact life we all live. Going through the same experiences we're shaped by, and he takes his time doing it. He gets the full run of the experience of being human, and he, he becomes for us incredibly identifiable. I love how John 1.14 puts it. This is the NIV. He made his dwelling among us. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the Bible, puts it this way. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And it's true that the concept of neighborhood is really being lost in America today. But the word neighborhood carries with it a strong flavor of a relational attachment, of a sense of being together in a place. I really believe that the reason Jesus came to earth the way he did was so that he would have a number of years. And we, we like to say his public ministry began at the age of 30. I believe Jesus' real ministry began from the time of his birth. He was ministering to his family and to his classmates and to his neighbors all the while that he was growing up. And you see, even during his public years, that the way he lived his life, it was so authentic, so earthly, earthy and relational. There was something very attractive about the way that Jesus wore religion. You've, you've met both types of people, haven't you? There are religious leaders who really put you off because they make you feel very uptight, very nervous, very wrong and judged. And there are other religious leaders that make you feel like drawn to the way that they know God. There's something attractive about the people who live their faith in the real world that we all live in. That it's not a turn on, turn off kind of switch, but it's always on because faith is the stuff of real life. You know, I think that's the way Jesus lived out his whole life with everybody. He touched so many lives personally. In fact, in the beginning of next year, the first sermon series is going to be from the Epistle of James. And if you've ever read the Epistle of James, what you see in that book is it's one of the most practical and earthy and relevant books of the Bible. There is such a sense of like, this is real faith for real life. This is not the kind of faith in cathedrals and in hierarchical religions where people tell us about what's what and what's not and, and exercise authority in remote ways. But the stuff in James feels like this is real Christianity for the kind of life I have to live with. And you know who wrote the book of James was Jesus' younger brother. And I think there's a reason why out of all the epistles, James' epistle feels the most approachable, the most earthy, the most intimate I think it was written by a guy who grew up in the same house as Jesus. 
who came to understand his own salvation and his faith against the backdrop of an older brother who really painted for him a picture of faith that was gritty and real and honest, authentic. And that's why when James wrote a letter to the church, it sounded different from all the other letters written to all the other churches. He never took shortcuts. He never phoned it in. I love that Jesus didn't just flip a keyboard in heaven and save me, but he took the long route. And I think that's an example to us as well. In John 15, 12, it says, My command from Jesus' mouth himself, my command is this, love each other the same way that I have loved you. It's a very simple command, but you will spend a lifetime trying to understand and practice that. You might be sitting next to somebody you actually say that you love. And the task and the challenge of your whole lifetime is trying to learn how to love that person the same way that Jesus Christ has loved you. In humility, in sacrifice, and in true intimacy... He didn't try to get us from a distance. He didn't Google humanity and then try to learn what it was like that way. He became one of us and patiently became older one day at a time, just like you and I. That's a level of knowing that is mind-blowing. And the challenge I want to give you this morning in your own relationships with other human beings is this. Are there people you say you love but that you stopped getting to know. I think this is so common in families. We say we love each other, but here's the thing. We've actively tried to get to know friends and lovers, but with our own families, our own siblings, our parents, our spouses, our children, we freeze them in one place. I, I Don't worry about you. I got you figured out. I know you. You're this and you're that and you're this. And we're busy getting to know everybody else and we're not staring intently at the people we really say we love the most. Jesus was not interested in loving people he didn't know. He wasn't interested in sending salvation as a Hail Mary pass to people who are far away. He got right up next to us. He knew us and then he loved us and he saved us. The love of God is always proximal. It's always right there next to you. It's close. It's intimate. It is never a cold, distant, theoretical love. God never says to us, you know I love you. Stop asking. How many people say that to the people they love? You know I love you. Get off my, get off my back. How, if they're asking, maybe they don't know. Maybe they need to hear it because you've forgotten what it is to love the people right in front of you. Maybe what they're craving is not even just that you would love them the ways you historically loved them, but they're saying, you don't even know me anymore. You know everything about who I was 10 years ago. You never let me forget what I did to you 10 years ago. My history is always right in front of me. It's always in front of you. But what do you know about me right now, honest to God? Do you even know me anymore, really? And the great irony of life is that the people who are always the closest to you physically often become the biggest strangers to you relationally. I was hanging out at my parents' house yesterday, found out that my mom started making wine at home. (laughs) She showed me this whole rig. I'm like, why are you doing... She's not a drunkard, but she adds onions to this wine. 
So I asked her to give me some before she adds the onions. It's like this whole health thing. And I didn't even know this about my parents. And that's just a small thing, like this weird kick that my mom's on, making onion wine. And then it just struck me, what really do I know about my own mother? I mean, I know my ma, you know, the lady who fed me and did my laundry growing up and the one woman who scolded me and this. But what do I really know about my mother? And what do I really know about my father that is the product of really looking at them today and saying, I love you, but I don't even know you. I want really badly to know you. Because it's not true love to love people you don't know. And don't be so quick to say, I know you. Because the thing is, a lot of us don't really know the person we share our life with. When I really listen to my kids, I realize how different they are than what I think they are. I'm scolding a cartoon of my kids sometimes, and I'm scolding them for things that aren't even true of them. They know that they're better kids than the kid I'm scolding. But if I don't really get to know them, I'm just going to make them nothing more than the last bad thing they did, the last time they did this. I know you. You just do this all the time. There's much more to them than that. Some of us might have even lost relationships that didn't need to be lost because we stopped looking at each other. How long can you claim to love someone you don't know? And so I I really want to give this challenge to you, this invitation, because it's one of the ways we, we truly, fully celebrate the spirit of Christmas, is that Christmas was about God coming close to us so that as he loved us, he could smell our breath. God is close enough that he wrinkles his nose at the stench of your breath. That's the love of God. And I think if we say we love others, That's exactly the way we should love one another as well. I think one of the greatest ways to capture the heart of Christmas is to renew our commitment to real intimacy in all the relationships we say that we value. And even in our relationship with God to say, I don't want to just know about you. I really do want to know you. I'm done with QTs and Bible studies and all that that just are cold and sterile and about knowledge. I really want to encounter you this year. I want to know you too. We started this message by commenting that one of the most common questions we hear is, what do you want for Christmas? I hope you understand that before you get a single present, in the very fact that our God entered our world as one of us, we have received an amazing gift. You know, we receive the blessing of God, our Savior, Becoming one of us. Saving us not from a long distance, but from right in front of us. And he shows us the character of real love is about humility, not pride. It's about sacrifice, not selfishness. And it's about intimacy, not some superficial, long-distance kind of thing. And I hope that as we dwell on that, it will bring about in our lives a renewal in the relationships that we treasure and prize the most. I hope that if you're dating someone, that that relationship flares up into something truly joyful in the next year. That if you're married, if you're a parent, then your family life 
will be ignited in a fresh way by this call to love one another in the exact same way that God loved us. I hope you'll take another look at your parents and your siblings and think about the way that you have loved those people as well. May every relationship in your life blossom because you're understanding through Christmas what real love actually is. Amen. Let's bow together. I'm going to invite the praise team to come back up. I think the right posture for us to have together is repentance and reflection today. Because I think love is one of those words that costs a penny to say and costs a million dollars to mean. And every relationship where you say you love and don't actually love will die, every single one of them. Relationships like plants are very fragile. It's not that easy to keep them alive. So I think we need to be reflective today about whether or not the people that we say that we love, the God that we say that we love, what's the nature of that love that we live out? Are we humble? Are we willing to lower ourselves even if we're not the ones who should have to do that? You're the wronged party, the aggrieved one, the wounded one. And yet God, who was wronged by us, made the first move and offered forgiveness before it had to be begged for. He extended the olive branch to us. Do you love with that kind of humility? Because you can rescue every broken relationship with humility like that. The real question is no longer how do you fix it, It's whether you really want it fixed or not. And if you want it fixed, humility is the way. Reflect on whether your love is truly sacrificial. And we're not talking about the sacrifices you want to make. But are you making the sacrifice that your loved ones need you to make desperately? Is it costing you something to love people. Finally, when you say you love someone, do you really know the people you love? Have you maintained the practice of real intimacy? Built the kind of life where you're really close? Do you ever just hold hands anymore? stare into each other's faces and just say, I I don't even know you anymore. I want to know you. Who are you today? That's the way God loved us. Right up close. It's the only way to love anyone. So why don't we just take a few minutes and quiet before God and just reflect on the nature of our love and then ask God to give us the kind of love that he gave us in our hearts so we can love one another the way he has loved us. Let's pray.
Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.